He's a lifelong social innovator with a passion for entrepreneurship. His first venture was acquired by Richard Branson's Virgin Group in 2007. Previously, he served as CEO of financial technology company that was acquired by Interactive Brokers in 2015. His experiences as an entrepreneur and founder have been chronicled in case studies at Babson College and at Harvard Business School. Outside of his entrepreneurial activities, he has served as a corporate executive, magazine columnist, author of business books, an active member of nonprofit and corporate boards, and occasional commentator in media outlets such as the Wall Street Journal, Entrepreneur Magazine, and Market Watch. He is currently the board chair of Prosperity Now, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit that bridges public policy and practice in the areas of education, financial capability, entrepreneurship, and home ownership. He's actively involved in the World Economic Forum as a member of the Global Agenda Council for the Future of Education, Gender, and Work. Join me on this episode of the Curvebenders podcast with Ashish Advani, President and CEO of JA Worldwide. Hi there, this is David Knorr, host of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm excited to share insights with you at the intersection of the future of work and strategic relationships. Make no mistake about it, there are a number of forces in the next two decades that will dramatically change the way we live, the way we work, the way we play, and the way we serve others. And I believe there are these relationships that will come into our lives that can change both the direction and destination of where we're headed. Those are the individuals I call curvebenders. So in each episode, I want to share with you insights from our research, from our interviews of great guests and their incredible experiences. I want to invite people to share their ideas and examples of not just coaches and mentors, but real curvebenders that have had a profound impact on their lives. Specifically, we're going to talk about pragmatic ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, and your behaviors. So let's get started. If you've heard me deliver a keynote speech, present a recent interactive online roundtable, or have been a listener of the Curvebenders podcast, you'd be happy to hear that we're getting great traction in our newly created NOR forum. It's a member-based community to ask questions, join discussions, and get daily access to me and my content. From ideas on your strategic relationships to co-creating new market opportunities to my current research and writing on curvebenders as strategic relationships and your nonlinear growth to what I'm thinking and reading, replays and downloads of past podcasts, join this free community to not just consume great content, but apply it in your personal and professional growth journey as well. Learn more at norgroup.com slash forum for exclusive content, resources, and events. Welcome to the Curvebenders podcast. Uh, this is David Knorr. I'm elated you've decided to join us. Today, my guest is a recent friend, but certain of, uh, certainly someone I've admired for some time, and not just uh, his stewardship of his organization, but this organization in general. So I want to welcome Ashish Advani uh, with Junior Achievement. Ashish, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. 
So for those who may not know you or know as much about Junior Achievement, can you talk a little briefly about where you've been, what you've done, and how you've gotten here? Sure. Happy to do so. I'll start with JA. So Junior Achievement uh, was founded 100 years ago, actually 100 years ago, about now. In fact, our anniversary is this year, 2019, uh, December 2019 to be specific. And uh, the organization really for its entire history has focused on preparing young people for the world of work. So the mission hasn't changed. How we do it, of course, has changed quite substantially, although some core programs still exist from the founding days. And now it's a very global organization. We operate in over 100 countries, 118 countries to be specific. And I went through JA when I was in high school growing up in Canada. So my introduction to the organization goes back kind of all the way to my youth. However, professionally, I've only been at the organization for just over four years. Where did you come from? Where did you do before all this? So I'm a tech entrepreneur by background. Uh, I started my first company in, in my 20s, and it was called Circle Lending. It was bought by Richard Branson in 2007. And then I did another company, uh, which was bought about five years ago by Interactive Brokers. Uh, so really always uh, fintech companies. Um, and um, in the course of that career, I found myself becoming you know better and better at raising money because that ends up being one of the core jobs when you're particularly in the tech business as an entrepreneur. And I realized that the skill of raising money and motivating people and motivating you know shareholders and other stakeholders um, was something I wanted to apply to a role which had more impact and more meaning. So when the opportunity to lead Junior Achievement Worldwide came along, it really was a fantastic sort of um, combination of my personal passion, my next phase of life, and trying to leverage skills I built over time for more impact. Uh, I'm fascinated. So as a tech entrepreneur, I'm sure you had a lot of different options about this next chapter. You're way too young to retire. So was this really a chance to give back as much as anything else? You know, give back is one of these sort of funny words these days, because I think if you do something you have personal passion for, and most entrepreneurs come to feel their business is actually helping the world in 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 some way. And I certainly felt that about both the businesses I ran. Uh, the second business was called Covester, and we were really democratizing access um, to to investment services globally and allowing really anyone to become a successful money manager. So both my first business, which was in person-to-person lending, and my second business, at least I felt as I was running them, they were making a pretty substantial impact. Um, I think now, JA, doing it in a nonprofit way, or at least uh, with the benefit of a global network, is a different way to create an impact. And certainly, I mean, I've been more and more impressed with how particularly now at this moment in history, focusing on the skills that young people need to prepare for the future of a really changing world of work is so timely and necessary. So I do think I took this job because I wanted to make a greater impact, but I don't at all want to make you feel that um, it felt like a giant shift in my career trajectory because I really always felt I was doing that in my other roles. Love your uh uh, definition and focus of uh, Jay's mission to to prepare young people for work. So, as you know, we've been talking about curve benders at this of this intersection of future of work and really strategic relationships. Can you give our audience a glimpse into what are some of the attributes in this future of work 
that you're thinking about? And more importantly, what are some of those changes you mentioned in programming of JA to likewise prepare young people for the future of work? Well, let me start by saying most people can't really forecast with a high degree of certainty um, what the skills and also um, specific jobs young people are going to have um, in the future, right? I think there's all sorts of data points running around, like 65% um, of young people will be in jobs that don't exist. Um, and, you know, the average young person will be in at least 20 jobs and seven careers over the course of their life. So these are the types of um, statistics, I think, which really reveal how little we know about what's going to be needed. Having said that, I think there's some things we do know. I think one thing we do know is when you have to move from job to job and career to career, you're going to have to have a mindset that is resilient and an approach to life that is more optimistic than pessimistic um, and the ability to really shift and learn new skills and have that innate curiosity um, that kind of allows you to to pick a radical example, go from being a miner to a coder. You've probably heard all that in the, in the news lately. Um, and that's really not what our education system is built for. It's really not what most programming over the past hundred years has really been built for. So I think I'll just start by saying one of the big sort of things I'd like to focus on, at least during our podcast, is the importance of mindset versus skills for the future of work. We've likewise found that so much of that mindset drives you towards developing competencies and capabilities. And you brought up natural curiosity. We believe, I believe that's foundational along with grit. It's fundamental to you really embracing any new idea, any new approach, any new competency capability that you may be really bad at early on, but you certainly build on. So, so build on that. So curiosity, what and mindset, what else? What else are you're really curious about what else are you building into into your programming? Well, one element of mindset, which I'm particularly passionate about because I've seen it up close and personal at JA and frankly, in my own life, is the concept of self-efficacy. So are you familiar with that, Noor? Uh, not, as, not as much. Okay, so good. So let me start by just sort of saying that self-efficacy, um, it means, you know, having an unshakable belief that you will be successful in what you do. Um, and it's a little bit past self-confidence. Uh, it's a little bit beyond self-esteem, which are two psychological constructs which are similar but different to self-efficacy. And the good news is self-efficacy is something you can actually learn. So a lot of people think, you know, entrepreneurs are born, not made, or people who are self-confident sort of are born that way. I, I I fundamentally disagree with that because I've seen it happen to young people that we serve of how their own belief in themselves changes by virtue of doing, you know, very specific things, which you can actually track and see. One specific thing is when you have a role model that has achieved success, who has a background that's just like yours. So one of the things that Jay does is we expose young people to role models who are not just you know, people you read in a book like Richard Branson or Oprah, but role models who are uh, people who come from the same backgrounds as the kids we serve. And that just opens up the mind that young people can look at somebody and say, wow, if they can do it, so can I, which impacts their own self-confidence and self-efficacy. That's just one example. I have a few more, but I'll just pause there. I love that. How do you, so, so 
the belief is an important one. And for young people to really believe, and I see it in my own kids, right? They believe they can do it. They've been conditioned to believe even uh, if I if I don't know all the steps or all the details of how will I get there, I have this confidence that I can persevere, if you will. How do you reinforce that? How do you how do you build on that foundation, which is critical to then let them or allow them to really solidify that and really build on that and believe in themselves through the ups and the downs? Uh, well, that's exactly what JA focuses on doing. So I just gave you the example of connecting young people to role models, which we do through job shadow programs, which we do through um, sort of mentoring and volunteering for delivery of almost all of our programs in some way. In addition to that, though, I think there's another um, core element of building self-efficacy in addition to role models, and that's learning by doing. So when you're young and you actually have the experience of, let's say, building a business while you're in high school or even, you know, creating a social enterprise when you're young, these are the types of experiences that make you feel in your 20s and 30s, you're more likely to feel confident that you can do it. You know, I went through JA and at the age of 14, you know, I ran a little student company in my school and that gave me the confidence to feel that I could be CEO in my 20s. Because once you've been CEO at the age of 14, the chance of you wanting to do it later on is higher. Or put differently, if you haven't done it when you're 14, the chance of you thinking of yourself as being capable of building a business later is still possible, but you know a little bit harder to think through. So it's those early experiences of learning by doing, I think, which make a giant difference in people's trajectory. And I'll give you one more. You know, when we think of... Um, particularly young people, or let's say young girls who haven't been exposed to, um, through their parents or through their friends, um, you know, people who've had careers in things like, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math, right? If they don't have a specific visualization in their mind that I can do this, or that somebody who's like me has done it, it really creates a mental block, which is hard to overcome later. It's hard to get excited about math or science, particularly given how it often is taught in schools, where if you don't have a clear destination in mind for what it could take you to, um, it, 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 it could be a mental block. So JA does a lot to put young people in contact with people from the business world who have careers, for example, in STEM, in STEM companies, particularly for young girls, to be able to help them see themselves as they could be in the future beyond where their parents are, beyond where their friends and family are. You brought up a great point that our education system perhaps isn't as optimized. And, and I think that was putting it kindly <laughs> of, of really preparing the next generation of students for uh, really what I believe will be a hybrid technology human knowledge worker. Can you talk about some examples of some of the best practices you've seen in education, perhaps in partnership with JA, that gives you hope? that you really believe uh, we are giving, and STEM for Girls is a good example, others that, you know, it gives you hope that these kids will be prepared, whether they decide to go to college or decide to go become entrepreneurs and not go necessarily the traditional route. Give us some examples that you've seen around the country, around the world, that really get you excited about education. Yeah, sure. I've got a, I've got a few examples. Let me pick a couple. So, um, one of the things that I've seen is the rise of micro-credentials as a way to break through the traditional barriers, which is, I think, holding the education system back. Um, so I think, like you rightly pointed out, 
the education system, particularly the K to 12 education system, hasn't really evolved, partly because everyone's so busy preparing for college or busy to get into college, the test taking environment and the need for standards for curriculum across the country has made it challenging um, to create the kind of innovative workforce of the future. One way to break through that is to start to decrease the value of a college degree and increase the value of micro-credentials. I'm not at all claiming, by the way, that we should stop encouraging kids to go to college, but I definitely feel that the value of a four-year degree versus the value of a micro-credential, which also signals to an employer or signals to a future um, colleague that you've built certain skills, is, 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 is increasing in importance. So JA has, has rolled out a micro-credential in Europe called the Entrepreneurial Skills Pass, ESP. And the, the Entrepreneurial Skills Pass is now in well over 25 countries where kids who've gone through JA actually can, can signal to employers and signal to even the educational establishment that they've gone through an 18-week program to build a business while they're in high school. And I see even beyond JA, many, many organizations are going to be introducing these micro-credentials and a bit like colleges, they'll be competing for credibility, competing for talent, competing for mind share. Um, and that, I think, is good for the world and good for making sure the skills young people learn are truly aligned to the future. That's one trend. Let me give you one more. Um, I mentioned job shadow earlier. What that really means is kids leave school for the day or for a period of time, maybe after school even, and go into a company and actually shadow an executive. And uh, what we find is we do this all over the U.S. And really, I think in 70 plus countries now over the world, we have job shadows, probably about half a million plus a year now. Large companies do it as well. In fact, many, I think, of the clients that you mentioned earlier of yours are ones that do job shadow with us. And um, one of the things we learn from this is the companies get as much out of it as the kids because the the executives find themselves explaining their jobs in a way that a young person will understand and also recognizing how the job is changing for the future because all the young person's questions are all about the future. So you see, you sort of see the pride in, in executives talking about their jobs and you see young people, of course, just hanging on their every word because it's giving relevance to what they're learning in school in a whole different way. And for many of these kids, they've never been in an office environment before. If their dad or their mom is, you know, driving a taxi or an Uber or having a job that's maybe not in an office environment. For these young kids, it's the first time being in this environment. It's very, very impactful. We're now taking that and we're actually introducing technology to allow kids to get different job shadows where they get to see different industries using virtual reality. So that's a new development. We started that in Asia and it's very exciting. I think it opens up the vista on scaling job shadow even to rural areas where it's hard to get connected to some companies. So that's just one, or at least a couple of examples of, of how the trends are impacting education. I love it. If you've joined us late, you're listening to Ashish Advani, the global CEO for Junior Achievement. And we're talking about the intersection of future of work and how do we prepare young people for some of those skills, capabilities. Uh, we've talked about mindset. I love the micro-credentialing. Would you, is it fair to describe it as a early exposure or or a hands-on experience with a glimpse into that space or that direction? Well, I think it is. I think the specific thing about the credential is 
you know, for a long, long time, many nonprofits and many great education organizations have been offering programs. The problem is, in, you know, after you finish the program, you still go back to your main school environment and you still start to chase test scores. You still start to chase the rat race of getting into a great college. And that tends to um, not make as sustainable and integrated as the impact that you've had when you go through an experiential learning program. Now, the good news is many schools already are introducing experiential learning. So this is already happening even in the core curriculum. Um, but for the value of these sort of out-of-school interventions or out-of-school programs to signal to employers and signal to colleges and signal to, to you know, all these third-party um, sort of entities that the young persons learn something that's actually going to help prepare them for the future of work, that's what's been missing because it's really only universities really that have been offering these credentials. That's it, universities, nothing else. And that needs to change. I've become recently a big fan of Mike Rowe, and I love his references to, similar to your your approach, that not every student is destined for a four-year traditional college degree or college experience. And by the way, moving forward, we're still going to need plumbers and welders and a lot of those trade skills that, Ashish, unfortunately, you see a massive brain drain in, in those that are the skilled labor that's retiring and not enough coming into the workforce. How does JA, or does it, you, you've mentioned executives and companies and shadowing, do you approach or how do you approach some of those labor, those skills that that uh, are, are diminishing or they're, they're dying in some ways? Yeah, no, absolutely. So vocational technical schools, I mean, all over the world are partners with JA. Um, and it really depends on which country we're talking about, because in some countries, I'll just I'll just say, uh, I'll take um, Kenya or South Africa. I think those are two good examples where our programs have been in all different types of schools and the shortage of skilled technicians who have a vocational and technical background is such that there's a demand for JA, both our mindset type programs and also our connectivity to employers in Kenya and South Africa. So I think uh, the short answer to your question is, you know, in 118 countries, we do do a lot of vocational technical partnerships, but it's not everywhere and it's not all the time. I've often also shied away from making, you know, blanket either assumptions or statements about you know, generational attributes. But I do want to know, you and I are, are roughly the same age. We're Gen Xers. And and uh, are you seeing some attributes in that next generation that likewise you're encouraged by? And then are there some that you're concerned by? And the reason I ask is, this is the next generation of talent our organizations desperately need to evolve and to remain relevant and to not just survive, but thrive. So talk to me about some of the attributes you're seeing in the young people in your program, some that, that give you hope and, and excitement and others that, that potentially could be a concern. Well, I think there is, I'll start with the positive. The positive is there is a love of technology and a love of everything new that I think is a healthy thing, um, particularly if it's not in, in measured in screen time, right? So the way we even as parents, and I know you, <laughs> you're a parent as well, we tend to think about screen time as a big giant negative. And usually it is because the kind of stuff that our kids do with their devices, you know, is 
borders on wasting time or sometimes addictive. But the positive side of that is there's this willingness to embrace new technology that allows young people to really think that any problem can be solved. And um, I think on balance, that's very needed for the world. I just, I'll give you an example. So we run a program all over the world called J Company Program, where kids create a business in high school. And I get a chance to go and attend the, the winning part of the competition. So I get to see all the um, kind of final round competitions all over the world. So I get a sort of first-hand view uh, of what kinds of businesses high school kids are coming up with. And the percentage of businesses that are about helping the world using technology is going up and up and up. So there's this sort of feeling of solving the environmental crisis or solving even the you know, problems with bullying or whatever social problem is in front of kids. I'm getting a front row seat of seeing how um, the way the solutions are being built is through technology. And I think that's a fantastic promising for the, for the future. So that's one positive trend. Let me give you one negative trend as well. Um, you know, I think there is increasing inequality in the way that young people around the world are being able to embrace business and entrepreneurship. So, um, you know, kids in Korea, for example, are way ahead of kids in neighboring countries. And even I would say kids in the U.S., in terms of coming up with these very creative solutions to both social problems and business problems. If you were to go and visit Jay Korea's, uh, Jay South Korea's um, um, a national championship or regional championship, you'll see some amazing businesses. Just like it was one business where these kids went to Alibaba, like the marketplace, bought a little adapter, sold the adapter into the backpacks of their friends and then created an app so they could track where all their friends are going at any point in time so they could get together. Like, this is what high school kids are coming up with, right? So when I compare that to neighboring countries and some other parts of the world, then, you know, kids just aren't there yet. So it just shows you how much inequality there is in the world. And I fear that that uh, might even get worse. Um, and that could lead to sort of massive, massive social problems. So we've identified 15 forces that we believe dramatically will change the way we think, li work, live, play, and give. And, uh, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, haves and have nots and geopolitics and a shrinking planet are several of those. What do you believe is the answer? How do, how do you close that inequality gap? Well, I think um, we've seen the answer over the last 30 or 40 years where some countries have become um, more equal and some countries have become more unequal. Um, and, you know, having a social safety net is just one way to ensure at least at the bottom of the pyramid, you create more equality. Um, having an education system that's more and more meritocratic and less and less expensive where, you know, people aren't in debt after they go through a four-year degree is just another example of how you can create a more equitable society. Um, I think more travel and more immigration and, and being able to let people, you know, not quite open borders, because I know that's um, perhaps uh, not going to happen in our lifetime, but but certainly being more ambitious in being able to allow not only the freedom of capital, but the freedom of labor just creates more equality over time. So I think we know the answer. The problem is the answer is so politically challenging. Because you go through these periods where you truly have some haves and have nots during periods of transition. And politically, you know, we aren't built as a, 
as a country or even a world to recognize that, you know, we need long-term solutions and election cycles don't lend themselves to long-term solutions. Short-term band-aids, right? So in a, uh, if for our audience, if you haven't had a chance to listen to a previous uh, session episode on future of talent, we talked about upskilling, reskilling, and redeploying your talent. And JA seems to be ex- doing exactly that. And I'm fascinated by uh, some of these technology businesses and also solving social uh, challenges and opportunities that these young folks come up with. So, uh, Ashish, one of the things we've talked about is curve benders as strategic relationships that dramatically change both our direction and ultimate destination. Can you comment on some folks, maybe one or two, that have had a, have had a profound impact on your journey, uh, your personal and professional growth journey? I'm happy to do it. I mean, I, I probably don't thank these people often enough and being on this podcast gives me a chance to even think of them, which I don't do very often either. But, um, you know, there was a gentleman who was uh, an investor in, in in my first company. He wasn't my first investor. I think he was sort of third or fourth, but he certainly was one who got very involved in the business and he joined the board and he really taught me, I think, how to run a board and how to have quarterly meetings and how to hold myself accountable and my team accountable. Even though we were a startup, and everything was just, you know, always changing and always moving. It created, I think, the discipline. It taught me really what running a company is and what having a board is. So his name's Howard Schwartz, and he was incredibly impactful um, to my company, and I'm, I'm very thankful to him. Another example is actually, uh, I think, one of my first role models and bosses, um, whose name is Michael Wenban. He was, at the time, head of a consulting firm. He was head of the the Canadian office of a consulting firm, a big global consulting firm I worked with. And, um, you know, he really, I would say, took me under his wing and supported my career. I, I applied to graduate school in the UK. He wrote my recommendation. I came back to the firm after graduate school. We kept in touch through that process. And, you know, I think people need mentors to guide their career choices and make sure that they are, um, uh, you know, not only making good choices, but thinking about the implications of those choices on other people they interact with. And I think Michael was exceptionally good at that. He's one of the best communicators I've ever seen. And I learned from him. So those are two that I'd pick. That's fascinating. So one of the, one of the questions I'm often asked when I talk about curve benders is these relationships that come into our lives and really change our trajectory is how do you become one? And I'm really fascinated by that question so as you think about the lives, uh, Ashish, you've impacted, what do you believe have given you that both awesome opportunity, but also responsibility to really change their direction, their destination? Well, first of all, I just want to say I love this term curve benders. I think it points to what's needed for the future of work with a um, approach and sort of a brand that people want to be part of. Right. Um, so congratulations on coming up with that. You know, J.A., because we have a business model that's all about connecting young people to role models, in many ways, we're enabling curve benders kind of all over the world. Right. So we have 450,000 volunteers a year serving 11 million plus kids a year in 118 countries. And I'm going to definitely take your book and I'm going to share it with many of my colleagues because. It'll help them realize that the impact of their work is so substantial. But to answer your question, 
the way in which I think people can think of themselves as curve benders or think of themselves as being able to impact another person is, is focusing on the concept of giving back because it's such a motivating thing, right? If you come into a relationship thinking that you're a giver in that relationship, not a taker, you'll find, this is just a law of karma, right? You know, good things will happen to you as a result, but that mentorship approach to relationships, I've seen it work at JA, I've seen it work with our staff, with our volunteers, with our kids. It is so powerful and frankly, the only thing that's going to help the world. I uh, couldn't agree more. And uh, I'm reminded of a mutual colleague of ours, Chester Eldon, who talks about, you know, living a life of gratitude. And likewise, if you, uh, and I'm a big fan of, you know, Adam Grant, and for years I've been talking about relationship givers, takers, and investors. And it seems like uh, this idea of changing other people's lives begins with the heart of giving, begins with uh, deeply wanting to give back to those that that uh, are open to it and are willing to listen, willing to embrace some new ideas and perspectives and really helping them think differently about their direction. For those who uh, would love to learn more, how do they find out more about JA? How do they find out more about you and how do they connect? Well, it's very easy. So our website is jaworldwide.org. Um my name is Ashish Advani, and uh, my email address is pretty simple. It's it's ashish.advani at jaworldwide.org. Feel free to email me. Um, but I do want to just do a big shout out to what you're doing here, Noor, with this podcast and with this book, because it's so aligned now that I've talked to you with what we're doing at J Worldwide um, that I'm just very excited to see the book come out and to... Um, you know, also talk about this concept of gratitude and how it ties into the future of work. I think it's an underappreciated connection. And the fact that Chester and Adam Grant and so many of our common friends are talking about it just makes me feel that um, it's, it's, it's something we should continue to push in our agenda as we speak around the world. That's very kind of you. And likewise, I, I'm, I'm equally excited to see the uh, the research. I've got several grad students doing social science research to reinforce uh, not just with opinions, but with executive interviews and this podcast and uh, all the, the the behind the scenes work we're doing to really drive home that none of us have a crystal ball. None of us can predict the future, but we can certainly plan for it. And this next generation of talent is going to be critical to all of our respective success. So the sooner we embrace technologies, the sooner we integrate ideas like grit and mindset and diversification and visualization and storytelling into kind of what we do and how we do with others in a giving, mentoring uh, manner, I believe the sooner we can all start to change that trajectory, change that direction and destination. You've been listening to Ashish Advani, uh, worldwide CEO of Juno Achievement on this Curvebenders podcast. Ashish, on behalf of both myself as well as our entire audience, I want to thank you for your time, for your insights, for all the amazing things I know you're doing at JA. And most importantly, thanks for, thanks for being a guest on the Curvebenders podcast today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. If you've listened to the Curvebenders podcast for a few episodes, you know that I'm writing the Curvebenders book on why strategic relationships will power your nonlinear growth in the future of work. 
This will be book number 11 with tools, ideas, insights, case studies, great interviews like the one you heard today. In essence, what you need to create a personal and professional growth roadmap in your future of work. I'm excited to begin sharing key sections with the members of our NOR Forum community. So go to norgroup.com slash forum and check out the Curve Benders thread for more details. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Curve Benders podcast on the future of education with my friend Ashish Advani. Three comments Ashish made during our interview really resonated with me. One, the skills young people need to succeed in the increasingly changing world is evolving at an accelerated pace. What I heard was is a resilient mindset and a fresh approach to learning new skills will be critical. Two, I really liked his description of self-efficacy, an unshakable belief that you'll succeed is something you can learn. Number three, micro-credentials. If we decrease the value of college degrees and increase the value of micro-credentials, like the ESP program that they've developed in Europe, they're fantastic signals of credibility, talent, and a passion for a skill aligned to the future. Although we recorded this episode well before the COVID-19 pandemic shut down the global economy, I think you heard how many of Ashish's ideas, like job shadowing, are so incredibly relevant. Don't forget, I turned the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles, so check them out in our free member-based community, NOR Forum. Join us at norgroup.com slash forum. I'm so thankful for our listeners on the Curvebenders podcast. I want to keep producing great content most beneficial to your personal and professional growth in this idea of future of work, so I'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on the various social media channels. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm using the hashtag CurvebendersPodcast, so make sure you follow that for all of our latest updates. 